This summer, we are doing a series on the Apostle Paul. It's called Paul, His Journeys, His Letters, and His Jesus. As we journey with the Apostle Paul this summer, we are going to look through the book of Acts primarily will be our text going through all of Paul's journeys. Last week in the podcast, the first of the series, we looked at Paul's past, Paul BC. Who was he before he met Christ? Who was Saul of Tarsus is what we were really looking at last week. Today in this episode, we are going to look at his conversion when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. We're going to look specifically at that encounter today. Next episode will focus on his hidden years, the years that he went away and met with the Lord Jesus one-on-one personally, where Jesus, it seems, taught Saul all of the theology that he needed Saul to know to prepare him to send him out into the world to share the gospel, where he learned directly from Jesus, because we learn in the book of Galatians Paul says that he learned directly from the Lord Jesus. So it seems that a great deal of that education happened during the hidden years. And then he worked probably as a tent maker in Tarsus for maybe up to like 10 years, maybe with his father, and then went with Barnabas to Antioch. And, and met the apostles and was finally accepted by the apostles in Jerusalem. All of that transpired a period of about 14 years that are mostly hidden from us before he went out into his missionary journeys. So next episode, we'll focus on that part of his life. And then we will get into his journeys. This uh, discovery of the Apostle Paul and his journeys and primarily his Jesus will take us throughout the entire summer. So I'm so excited that you are joining me today. So like I said, today is going to focus on his conversion when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He is still going by the name Saul, and Jesus meets him in a very powerful way. Before we get into that, I want to clear up a couple of things that came up in my research this week, and I just wanted to clarify maybe a couple things that I said last week. In the first episode, I mentioned that Paul may have been born around 1 AD, and I'm using a number of different sources of different biographers and commentators. One of the commentators or one of the biographers that I was am using heavily, John Pollock, his his best guess is about 1 AD for when Saul was born. But really, all the different sources that I'm using say anywhere in the single digits AD. So we know that he was converted. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus just a couple of years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, so probably 34 AD. And so Saul is approximately 30 years old when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, give or take five years. So there's just a clarification about his age. And then another thing that's interesting that I didn't mention last week is a lot of biographers and commentators and scholars assume that Paul had been married because almost all Jewish Pharisees were married. So they assume that Paul would have been. When he is doing his traveling and his letter writing, we know that he is single because he makes comments about his singleness. More than likely, if he ever had been married, more than likely his wife had died young before 
before Paul ever came to know Jesus. So he may have been widowed. He also may never have been married, but that, so we just don't know if he ever had been married or not, but he certainly, when he is traveling and writing his letters, he certainly is writing as from a single man's perspective at that point. So those are just a couple clarifying things that I'd like to say. Also, I noticed just in myself as I listen to myself talk that I am definitely interchanging his names Saul and Paul. I try to use Saul prior to his conversion and when he was in a scenario surrounded by his Jewish brothers and sisters and when he was out speaking and preaching to the Greeks and the Romans, he certainly would have went by Paul. But I definitely use them interchangeably, so I just want to apologize in advance if that is confusing. I will primarily be calling him Paul, but certainly today... When we meet him in his prior to his conversion in the book of Acts, he is called Saul here. So I will be using Saul. So today, the primary text of Paul's conversion is is in Acts chapter 9. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 9. And then we are going to look ahead at two specific texts where Paul is recalling back to this time of his conversion. Those are in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. The first one in Acts chapter 22 is approximately 57 AD when he's been arrested in Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And the second time is about two years later, so approximately 59 AD, when he is in prison in Caesarea Maritime and he is testifying to King Agrippa and he's really appealing to go to Caesar. He wants to be sent to Rome to go to Caesar and to have trial under Caesar. And so he's giving a testimony there in Acts chapter 26. So we'll look at Acts chapter 9 first. And again, this is in approximately 34 AD. And then the next one we're going to look at is a probably 57 AD. So 23 years later. And then the next time is going to be about 59 AD. So about 25 years after conversion. All right, so I'm going to start in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Keep in mind, Saul is still a hater of the Christians. He's a hater of the message of Jesus because he sees it as a direct hindrance or twisting or loss of Torah, of the Old Testament covenant that God made with the Jews. And so while it's being expressed in anger and hatred, he is acting out in this way out of a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to uphold the law, to perfect the law, not to abolish the law. So there's a misunderstanding in in Saul's mind, and that's where this anger is coming from. Also, in the Old Testament, it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. In Deuteronomy, Jesus was hung on a tree in his crucifixion. So it was very confusing and maddening to anybody who was Jewish to hear that the Messiah would ever be hung on a cross because cursed is the man who's hung on on the cross. The Messiah could never be hung on a cross. So a misunderstanding that the cross and Jesus bearing the curse of sin for us is the only way that we might be saved. So Saul's anger 
comes from a place of misunderstanding, and really it does in fact come from a love for Torah, but just not clear. He's not clear yet on the implications of Torah for the coming Savior. All right, so starting at verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way is capitalized, that would be the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light fell from heaven, A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he, how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right, so that is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. So let's just go through that a little bit. So Saul is angry. He's breathing out murderous threats. He goes to the chief priests in Jerusalem and asks for letters of of authority, with their authority, to go and arrest any Christians he can find in Damascus. Remember, last time when we were together, we learned that when Stephen was stoned, a great persecution amongst Christians broke out in Jerusalem, and the Christians, except for the apostles, scattered to the surrounding regions. And so Christians now had scattered uh, within a within the last year or couple of years, Christians had scattered to surrounding regions and had filled up other cities. Also, people from every nation surrounding Israel had come to Pentecost to celebrate the festival of Pentecost 
shortly after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And when Peter preached, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he preached the gospel, people from every single nation, certainly including Syria, heard the message of Jesus and came to Christ and then went back to their homes with the message of Jesus. So there were certainly Jews from Damascus who came to Christ right then at Pentecost. And so the, the church in Damascus probably had had started right after Jesus ascended into heaven and and had been growing for a couple of years. But then when, when the persecution in Jerusalem started up a couple of years later, uh, after the stoning of Stephen, then people fled and certainly the church in Damascus and in every other city would have grown at that time as people fled out of Jerusalem. Anyway, so Saul wants to go to Damascus to arrest Christians. This is... If you look it up on Google Maps, the distance between Jerusalem and Damascus, according to highways, if you were going to drive it, it's about 195 miles. If you're going to walk it and take a little bit more of a direct route where you don't have to follow the highways, it's more like 160 miles. Either way, he's walking a very long way. And if you assume about 20 miles per day. This journey is about an eight-day walk. Now, they walked everywhere back then, so to them, that was much more normal. To us, it sounds like, what in the world? He was so set on persecuting Christians, on getting this, what he would consider a twist, a lie, a cult. What He was so, so set on demolishing it that he would walk through the desert for eight days just to arrest Christians and to try to get them to denounce Jesus through punishment, through suffering. And then if they didn't, he would bring them back to Jerusalem, you know, probably have them chained and be dragging them. I'm not sure how he would get them back to Jerusalem necessarily. Certainly there would have been carts and donkeys involved. And it was laborious what he was doing, extremely laborious on his part to go through this endeavor. But that just shows how passionately he wanted to get rid of the Christians, get rid of the message of Jesus. So he's going to Damascus. As he's getting near Damascus, so he's been on the road for several days, and as he's getting close to Damascus, suddenly he just sees a light shining from heaven and it knocks him to the ground. In one of the, his other testimonies, we learned that it also knocks his traveling partners to the ground. But Saul is going to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to him, whereas his traveling partners, it says they, they hear a sound, but it doesn't seem that they hear the voice of Jesus. They hear a sound. So Jesus speaks to Saul, and actually it's really interesting. I'm reading a novel from by Walt Wangren, which is just wonderful, a no- his novel on, on Paul. That's the name of his novel, Paul, a novel. <laughs> and he, he uses a lot of imagination in telling the story of Paul. And in his imagination, the sound that the traveling partners hear is the sound of roaring waters, which is really cool because that's how Jesus' voice is, is described in Revelation. And so they hear roaring waters, and Saul hears Jesus saying words. So that's really neat. But anyway, so Jesus speaks to Saul and asks, why are you persecuting me? And Saul right away asks, who are you? 
And then he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And isn't that so interesting that Jesus says you are persecuting me. Saul thinks he's just persecuting people, men and women who are worshiping Jesus. But Jesus says you are persecuting me. When you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. And then he, I love this. Jesus says, now get up. Stand up, go into the city, and you will find out what you're supposed to do. So it's like you are going to get your commanding orders as soon as you get to the city. Actually, it takes a little, a few days. But so Saul goes into the city. He has to be led there because after this bright light shines on him or shines in his eyes, he is blinded by that light. And so he is led by the hand into Damascus. One of the commentators I read just talks about the striking difference between the beginning of chapter 9 when Saul is breathing out murderous threats and he is marching towards Damascus full of power and passion and mission. He's on a mission. And then after he gets struck down by Jesus and blinded, then he is being led by the hand like a lamb into, into Damascus, has to be led and guided there holding somebody's hand. Just such an astonishing difference in his demeanor. <clears throat> so anyway, when he gets to Damascus, we find out that he is going to go to the house of a man named Judas who lives on Straight Street. Interestingly, you can still go to Straight Street in Damascus. In fact, a few of the different commentaries and biographies that I'm reading have pictures of Straight Street in Damascus. It is straight. (laughs) That's why it's called Straight Street. We don't know who Judas is. Again, uh, Walt Wengren, whose novel I'm reading, uh, puts a character, develops a character of who this Judas is and that he is a man from the synagogue who agrees to meet Saul of Tarsus as he is coming into Damascus and that he has agreed to meet him because he also is deeply, deeply concerned and grieved about all the changes happening in the synagogues as people are now coming to believe in this Jesus, this crucified, risen Messiah, and he's deeply grieved at the uproar that this is causing in the synagogues. And so he agrees to come and meet Saul. So Walt Wangren in his, uh, with his imagination is, is taking some literary freedom there and creating a, a character out of him. But I find it very compelling. And actually in his novel, he actually makes Ananias and Judas into friends. And that one of Judas's griefs is that his dear friend Ananias, who is a faithful Jew, has now come to believe in Jesus as well. And and that's just a really interesting connection so that Ananias knows where to go. Like when he goes to Judas's house on Straight Street, he knows which house it is. And and so that's how Walt Wangren makes that connection. But we don't we don't know for sure who who Judas is. We don't know the connection or if there's any connection between Ananias and Judas. But Ananias, we know, has come to faith in Jesus. Judas probably has not come to faith in Jesus because it seems like if Judas, who lived on Straight Street, who was going to receive and he received Saul when he came to stay and he was going to welcome him to stay at his home while Saul did his work in Damascus. It seems like if he already believed in Jesus, then he would have been the one more than likely that God had prepared for uh, baptizing the newly converted Saul. 
But instead, God chooses a man named Ananias to go and baptize the newly converted Paul. So anyway, Ananias gets a message. Ananias just received a, receives a message from the Lord that he wants him to go to Straight Street, to Judas's house, and there's a man from Tarsus named Saul there. In the initial message that God gives to Ananias, he just says he has seen a vision and in the vision, a man named Ananias comes and places his hands on him to restore his sight. That's all that Ananias gets in the first message from God. And so Ananias would still think, but God, he's going to kill me. Like, I've heard about him. Everybody has heard about Saul of Tarsus and how he hates the Christians and how he has come to destroy us. Why would you ever want to send me there? And then the Lord gives more of the story to Ananias. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him that he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias goes like right away. He asks one question, God clarifies, and then he just goes and he gets there and he calls him brother Saul. He gives him a name of Christian affirmation, of Christian brotherhood, of acceptance, of love, of fellowship. And he lets them, him know that Jesus, I understand that Jesus appeared to you on the road and now Jesus has sent me here so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that you can be baptized. And Saul's blindness fell off like scales. So scales fall from Saul's eyes and he can see again. People have said that his blindness was representing the darkness of his soul prior to this. And his restored sight is representing that he can see Jesus is the light of the world. He can see clearly now. The truth of the gospel has been revealed to him now and he can see clearly. So that is the text out of Acts chapter 9. We are going to read it from Paul's perspective again, like 23 years later. We're going to hear Paul's perspective as he is testifying to his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He has been arrested and he wants to speak to the people about who he was and how his life changed. He wants to share his story with them. And so I'm going to share with you from Acts chapter 22 about uh, his conversion. So he's just been arrested and he asked to speak. So he asked the people who are literally like hanging on to his arms, holding on to his arms. He asks if he can speak to the people. And he starts speaking to them in Aramaic, which is their their own language, the, the language of the people, the Jewish people who are living in Jerusalem. And so I'm in Acts chapter two, 22. I'm going to start at verse 2. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and the council can themselves testify. 
I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me, and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He replied, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. I love that phrase. He has an assignment that God planned out in advance for him, and he will be told the assignment when he gets to Damascus. I'm going to start again in verse 11. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of that light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see them. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. All right, so we get a little bit more pieces of the puzzle there. We know in that text, we see that Ananias certainly is highly respected amongst the Jews, but also has become to believe in Jesus. He comes over and baptizes Saul. Where did he baptize him? More than likely in a fountain near the home and like the atrium of the home or right outside the home. That's probably where he was baptized. And Ananias tells him that I know that you are going to be a witness for Jesus of everything you have seen and heard. He also says to him, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to see the righteous one. One of the key elements of being an apostle is that you have An apostle is always personally sent by the Lord Jesus and has seen the Lord Jesus physically. So we know from here, but also from other places in Paul's writing, we know that when he saw the light, the light that ended up blinding him, before he became blind, during the time that he's talking to Jesus, he is seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus physically, personally. We know that from different places that he writes in his letter that he has seen the Lord. One of the most specific is in 1 Corinthians 15 when the Apostle Paul is writing and he's talking about how after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to all these different people. And then he says, and last of all, he appeared to me. And here we can see Ananias saying that you have seen the righteous one. So he he saw Jesus in the light in a physical form prior to the light blinding him. And that's a very that's a very important point that we uh, need to make sure we understand. All right, so that was in about 57 AD. Right after he's arrested in Jerusalem, he gets transferred to Caesarea Maritime and he stays in prison there. And then two years after he's in prison at Caesarea 
maritime, he comes under trial under King Agrippa, and he gives his testimony again to King Agrippa. So I'm going to share with you from Acts chapter 26 the way he describes the same experience when he's telling it to King Agrippa. So he's telling King Agrippa about how passionate he was to rid the synagogues of Christians to get rid of the message of Jesus. And he says, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, Christians, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. Okay, I love that detail. That's the only place we get this detail, that in the in the experience that Paul has when he is seeing Jesus and speaking to Jesus, Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, and I just think that is so cool because that is the language that Jesus would have spoke when he lived on earth, when he did all his ministry, he spoke Aramaic. And when he is in his risen state speaking to Saul, he speaks Aramaic. I just think that's a really cool, really cool point. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, let's pause there. What is that about? We don't get that in any of the other texts about the about this same scenario. We don't get that anywhere else. What is that? So kicking against the goad is, well, a goad was a stick with a pointed end that was used to prod oxen cattle in the correct direction. So when Jesus says to Saul, it's hard for you, other translations say it hurts you to kick against the goad, we know that God apparently has been working gently but consistently prodding Saul to understand Jesus, to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. God has been prodding Paul in his heart for some time, and Saul just keeps kicking against that. He's just kicking against it, and he it's hurting him. So we know that inside of him, there's been some turmoil going on as God is prodding gently and consistently, gently and consistently. There's been some turmoil going on in Saul's spirit. And finally, Jesus just knocks him to the ground, literally knocks him to the ground to get his attention because he the prodding, clearly uh, Saul was just kicking against the prodding the whole time. And he wasn't just hurting himself, he was hurting others viciously. So it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm in verse 15 of Acts 26. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place 
among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus also says, you have seen me. You have seen me. I want you to be a witness of what you have seen of me and what you will see of me. He says, I am sending you to them, to the Jews and the Gentiles, to open their eyes. And so this is so interesting that for three days after this, Saul's eyes remain closed with like scales over them, blinding him. And Jesus says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. So first, Saul has to be blinded for a few days and then have his own eyes opened to the acceptance of Christian fellowship, to the acceptance of the gospel, to the acceptance that's in his baptism, to the forgiveness of his sins. Jesus will open his own eyes to all of that, and then he will be sent forth to open the eyes of others. I want us to think about a little bit about the significance of Ananias in this story. Ananias is so brave and so courageous and so obedient. Who would do that? (laughs) To go to somebody who you are afraid, if I go to him, he is going to kill me. He will kill me the minute I get in the house. The whole reason that he came on this eight-day journey into Damascus is to kill people like me. That's why he's here. Who would say, okay, Lord, I'll go to him? Ananias did. I, I want to think that I would too. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> would I be that brave? Would I be that obedient? Would I have that much courage and that much trust in what God is asking me to do? I want to say, yes, I would. But I've never been in this situation. And I... I just, I want to be like Ananias. I want to be that obedient. I want to be that courageous and go to wherever God is calling me and to do whatever God is asking me without doubt. He may have had fear, but he was not doubting God's plan. He went and he was assured of what he was doing. He placed his hands on Saul and called him Brother Saul. He baptized him in the name of the Lord Jesus. He commissioned him and said, God is sending you out to preach to the Gentiles, to preach to their kings, to preach to the people of Israel. God is sending you out. Ananias trusted in God's plan. And he is never mentioned again in scripture. All we have about Ananias is what I've read to you about Ananias. We have no other mention of him in scripture. And yet the role that he played, he commissioned and sent out the most powerful, significant missionary of the gospel that has ever lived. And Ananias sent him out. He sent him forth. He baptized him. I want to be like Ananias. we, We have no idea what one little step, well, this is not little, this is a huge step of obedience, but even the little steps of obedience, we just have no idea the ripple effect that a step of obedience will have and the impact it can have on the people around us. And in in Saul's case, in the world at large, like Ananias took the step of faith, trusted God, was obedient to God, and the ripple effect changed the world for the gospel. It's staggering. 
I'd like to be like Ananias. I want to share with you from the book I'm reading by John Pollock, who is a biographer. I've mentioned him before. If it's okay, I would like to read from his biography of the Apostle Paul, his Damascus Road envisionment, what he what he has put together as like, he, he tells it as a story and he writes it in no, novel form and it's very beautiful. So it's just a couple pages. On the last day of the journey, the caravan passed near Mount Hermon. Its peaks, still under snow, rose from brown foothills, white with wildflowers. But the mountain no longer looked particularly high, because they were too close under it to see the summit. And the Damascus plain itself is over 2,000 feet. Far ahead, below a bare, craggy hill, lay the green of the oasis, encouraging them to plod on to journey's end, rather than make their normal daily stop before noon. Paul and his party walked ahead while one man led their donkeys roped together a little way to the rear. The road had emptied itself of country people making for market. Now and again they saw sheep or goats guarded by a small boy swinging his sling, or an occasional patch of cultivation where a man walked behind a plow, guiding his ox along a goad or iron-tipped wand. The sky was clear blue. Paul's memory is emphatic that there was no thunderstorm or violent wind, as some suggest who seek a natural explanation for what happened. He was not near a nervous breakdown or about to suffer an epileptic fit. He wasn't even in a hurry. Suddenly, about midday, a great light flashed from around the sky, all around me, a light more brilliant than the sun, shining all around me and my traveling companions. Paul and the others fell to the ground. They were appalled by this phenomenon, not just a flash, but sustained light, terrifying and inexplicable. The companions seemed to have stumbled to their feet. Paul remained prostrate. For him alone, the light grew in intensity. He heard a voice, at once calm and authoritative, say in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He looked up. Within the center of light, which blinded him from his surroundings, he faced a man about his own age. Paul could not believe what he heard and saw. All his convictions, intellect and training, his reputation, his self-respect, demanded that Jesus should not be alive again. He played for a time and said, Who are you, Lord? He was using a mode of address that might simply mean, Your honor. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you this kicking against the goad. And then Paul knew. In a second that seemed an eternity, he saw the wounds in Jesus' hands and feet, saw the face, knew he had seen the Lord and that he was alive, as Stephen and the others said, and that he loved not only those whom Paul persecuted, but he also loved Paul himself. It's hard for you to kick against the goad. Not one word of reproach. Paul had never admitted to himself that he felt pricks of a goad as he raged against Stephen and his disciples. But now, instantaneously, he was shatteringly aware that he had been fighting Jesus and fighting himself, his conscience, his powerlessness, the darkness and chaos in his own soul. God hovered over this chaos and brought him to the moment of a new creation. It only wanted his yes. Paul broke. He was trembling and in no state to weigh the pros and cons of changing sides. He only knew that he heard a voice and had seen the Lord 
and that nothing mattered but to find and obey his will. What shall I do, Lord? He used the same ascription as before, but all the obedience and worship and love in heaven and earth went into that one word, Lord. At that moment, he knew he was utterly forgiven, utterly loved. Rise to your feet, he heard, and stand upright and go into Damascus, and you will be told what to do. He had trusted. Now he had to obey. When at last he stood, he was blind. He put out his hand and groped until he was led by his frightened companions, who were all the more alarmed now that they could hear him speaking to no one. Paul moved blindly into the unknown, yet he was not in darkness but in light. I could not see because of the brightness of that light. Though blue sky and the road's yellow dust and the green of the nearing oasis were all snuffed out, he did not miss them. Light suffused his blind eyes and his mind. As he walked, obeying that first command from his new master, he made the first great discovery. Jesus remained beside him, not the form of a crucified, risen body, but someone invisible yet there. I just think that's a beautiful synopsis or a beautiful way of storytelling what may have happened the way it may have happened as Paul walked into Damascus, a changed man. As he walked with Jesus, he had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, he knew that Jesus was real, that Jesus was the savior of the world, that Jesus had been crucified and resurrected for the sin of the whole world, that he is the one true God, that he was the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. He knew and he never, ever doubted again in his entire life. He never had a shadow of a doubt. That is beautiful. And there were significant people who come along his way, and we're going to meet many of them as we go through his journey this summer. There were significant people that God sent to encourage him. The first being Ananias, who came to encourage him and to call him brother, to accept him, to welcome him into the family of God through baptism. Just an incredible role that Ananias played. As we wrap up, I want to just go back to something I said last week as well, but one of Paul's most well-known phrases that he wrote is 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. What a beautiful truth. And he experienced it first. He wrote that from a place of knowing full well what that experience is like, that the old was gone and the new had come. As that light flashed around him, as he was knocked to the ground, as he saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ with his own eyes, the old persecutor of the Christians, the old person who was persecuting Jesus himself, he was completely gone. And behold, the new had come. Jesus had made him new. Jesus makes us new. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus sets us free from our past to live in freedom. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. 
My prayer as you learn about Paul's conversion is that you would know it's true for yourself too, that there is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus and that whoever or whatever you were before you met Jesus, he has made you new. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So let's walk in newness. Amen and amen. Have a great day. Bye.